Hey, church family. I hope you had a good week. Hope you're doing well. I hope um, you had a good week trusting in God uh, as your king. Um, remembering that each day we need him to sustain us, to get us through to, for our daily bread. Um, I know if I'm honest, I didn't have a week fully like that. Um, I had some good days and I had some days where I took things for granted. Um, maybe you guys can relate to that. It was, um, but I think we need to be reminded uh, often that our God is on his throne. And today we're just going to be reminded of that again, that he's on, our thr- on his throne and that we need him each day. Um, or else we can't make it. We can't make it. And so um, I hope you had a chance with your family to listen to the YouTube videos of the worship songs. I, I encourage you to on the Realm post. And if you didn't, you can hit pause right now and go back. And I think you'll be blessed by that. Just um, if you're with your family or by yourself, just to listen to these songs and to uh, just exalt our King together. But right now um, we're going to worship God through reading his word. And we're going to stay mainly in the text um, in Luke 4. 16 through 21. So you can open up your Bibles there with me. And I'm going to read this, and then we're going to pray and get started. Uh, Luke 4, 16 through 21. And this is uh, one day, right when Jesus began his ministry, right after he was tempted for 40 days in the, in the wilderness by Satan. And uh, he, he's starting his ministry. He goes back to his hometown, and this is what he said and did. Luke 4, 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And in that one sentence, he was saying to them, The kingdom has come, and I am your king. Will you pray with me? Dear Father, we uh, just exalt you. Um, as our king, you are, you have the name above all names. And Lord, we uh, just um, exalt you as king over the world, um, that you rule and you reign. And um, Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, Lord. Um, and you would let us be part of that as you want to. And Lord, we do um, ask that you give us your daily bread today. Lord, to, we, we need you. Um, to, to bring your kingdom about. We need you to just live and to um, exist and um, sustain us. So we trust that you will. And Lord, I just pray with the psalmist today, Lord, would you um, let the meditation of my, of my heart and the words of my mouth be ever pleasing to you, God. Um, and would you just uh, teach us from your word. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So how are you doing today, church family? Are you freaked out? Are you lonely? Are you stir crazy? Are you tired of Netflix yet? Um, maybe you don't like your family. Do you like your family still? Um, how are you doing? Um, it's kind of a crazy, crazy time. And if you were to ask me two months ago, I was thinking about this. If you asked me two months ago, what would it take for America to stay home, to be told 
what to do, where to go, with whom, um, what they could have, and, and they were, they were going to comply with that. If you were to ask me, what would it take? I would have I said something like maybe Nazi Germany, uh, maybe uh, some dictator, a lot of force, a lot of, lot of uh, visible force. Um, but here we are. Here we are. And who knew it would take an unseen thing, uh, a little virus to wreak that havoc in our, in our world. Um, every day you hear something different in the news from our government or from the news and um, telling us where we can go, what we can do, who we can do it with, and what we can have. And, um, you know, I think we're all willing to do it, but the question that seems to be on everyone's mind is for how long? How long is that going to happen? And I think we're all willing to comply. You know, as good Americans, I think fellow citizens, we're, we're for the health of our country, for the health of the elderly and people around us, we're willing to do it for a period of time. But I was thinking, you know, that executive order that came, maybe you got that the Amber Alert on your phone Wednesday, um, that executive order that came to be like locked down in your home. If it said something like this, you know, uh, you know we're going to tell you where you can go um, and, and only what you can do and how long you can be there and, um, and who you can do it with indefinitely. I wonder how many people would have complied with that. Uh, maybe fewer people. Maybe fewer people would have a hard time with that. Um, you know, like if, if there's no time frame, it's just indefinite. It got me thinking, what would it take for you and me to let someone dictate where we could be, with whom, all that stuff indefinitely? What would it take with no time frame? And let us just comply with it and be okay with it. Do you trust anyone in the world to do that to you, to, to tell you that, to dictate that for you? Would you, would you listen um, where you should live, with whom, and all that? Um, would you even trust your family with that or your best friend? So it got me thinking about governments, and I have a question for you. What do you guys think um, is the best form of government? So give, give yourself some time to think about it. What's the best form of government? And if you, if you like me, uh, if you like me uh, think a monarchy is the best form of government, raise your hand or text me. I, I can't see you. Um, one person at the top ruling. Is that the best form of government? I think so. Um, I don't want to make a case for it. Um, and if you're, not, if you're not convinced, what would it take for you to be convinced that a, that a monarchy is the best? Um, what if the king was super strong? He could do anything he wanted to. What if the king was also super rich? He just had resources. He was generous. People never lacked anything in his kingdom. Um, what if he was super wise? And he, could, he just judged between things rightly. He always took care of his people. Um, would you follow that king? Well, I want scripture this morning to convince us that a monarchy is the best, not me. Um, and if you're already convinced with me, um, let it just remind us this morning that, that uh, who our king is and what kingdom we live in. Um, this is the second message in a series called He Reigns. And... Um, it's just reflecting on what it means to live in God's kingdom in the midst of this earthly kingdom. What does it mean to be kingdom citizens? What does it mean to worship him as king and trust him? And um, last week, we just looked at the Old Testament. We just took a high level, very fast view on the Old Testament, what it has to say about his kingdom. And if you weren't, uh, if you didn't listen to it um, last week or watch it, um, I'd, I'd encourage you to go to windsorchurch.org and listen to it, because it really sets up this message. This is part two. I'm not going to spend a lot of time reviewing 
on where we went. But So listen to that. Um, it'll set this message up if you haven't already. But today we're just going to pick that up where we left off. Um, but I do want to remind us of a couple things. We did talk about, um, we started with the first pages of the Bible in Genesis. And we talked about what God's design for his kingdom was in the garden. And we said this, in God's kingdom, the king lives with the commoners. He lives with the people. He's not a king up on a hill somewhere removed from the, from the peasants, the lowly people. He's with them, and he wants them to be with him, and he wants to take afternoon walks with them. We see that in the first pages of the Bible. He's that kind of a king. Um, the other thing we saw is that the king wants to make the commoners royalty um, to princes and princesses to rule with him. He doesn't just want subjects to serve him. He wants sons and daughters to represent him, to work with him, to, to build and expand this kingdom in partnership with him. We see that in the first pages of the Bible and all throughout the Bible. And right now, um, I want to encourage you um, to hit pause, um, maybe open up another uh, window in your browser and look for the Bible Project video. Just, just Google the Bible Project or go to YouTube, the Bible Project, and, and watch the image of God video on the Bible Project YouTube page. And that will just really set up everything we're going to be talking about. I'm going to refer to kind of some of the things we've, we've already talked about in that video. And so you don't have to do that, but um, you might want to do that right now. And then we'll, we'll pick right back up. Um, but that'll really just give you background and context for what we've been talking about. But where we left off last week was in, the, in the Old Testament was a promise given to Zechariah, one of the last books of the Bible, Zechariah 9.9. And it said this. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so that's, that's the hope that the, that the Old Testament is left with, is there's a king and he's coming. And he's going to come and he's going to redeem and he's going to rescue and he's going to deliver his kingdom. And, they, and all the Israelites were hoping for this king to come. And that brings us to what we read today already, um, that when, when Jesus went to Nazareth and he opened up this Isaiah scroll in his hometown, he, he quotes the Old Testament, Isaiah, and he's holding on to this promise. Everyone's holding on to this promise that this king is coming, this promised king is coming, and he's going to redeem his people and bring them back to their kingdom. So he's quoting Isaiah 61. And if you can imagine, like I was, I was just trying to imagine this week, you know, a scroll. We have Bibles with numbers. Can you imagine trying to find one particular text in a scroll with no numbers in it? That's what Jesus did. That's how well he knew the Bible um, as he had it. And he makes these words in Isaiah written hundreds of years before, like 700 years before Jesus speaks these words. He makes them his own words. He speaks them as if they're first person because he's the only one that could do that, right? He, he, he is the living word that inspired those words 700 years before. So he says, and we're going to stay in Luke 4, so if you're there with me, he says in Luke uh, 4.18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. I'm going to stop right there. In this verse, he's telling his listeners that he is the Messiah. The word, the word Messiah means literally anointed one. It means anointed with oil. And in the Old Testament, there was two offices, two roles that were anointed. Um, there was a king, kings were anointed, and priests were anointed. And so the Messiah, when, when people thought of the word Messiah, what they were looking for was a king. They were looking for a king slash priest to come. 
When they thought Messiah, they would have thought of a king. Um, we think of maybe savior, they would have thought king, a king savior, same thing. Um, that's what Messiah's word to them, anointed ones. And um, when they heard that term, they would have thought of that king priest. So the word Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. So we usually say Jesus Christ, or we might even refer to him as Christ, as if it's his first name. Jesus Christ would be equal to Jesus the Messiah, which would also be equal to Jesus the King. So sometimes when I'm reading the Bible and I, I come across the word Messiah or, or Christ, I think Jesus the King, and it helps me think of how they would have thought about it. Um, continuing in verse 18, he says this, anointed me to what? To proclaim the good news, the good news. And this is where we get the word gospel. It's a word we throw around in the church a lot. It's a great word. Um, it's very, it's right from the Bible. And what does it mean? What would they have thought about when they thought the word good news or gospel? In Hebrew, the word is basar. And in Greek, it's euangelion, which is where we get our word evangelical or um, evangelize. And it means, um, it means specifically in their context, it's the good news of a king. It's the good news that a king is coming and he's bringing his kingdom. Um, you know, like in 1 Samuel 31, and it's all over the Old Testament, um, when the Philistines killed Saul, the first king of Israel, they brought back, it says, good news to their, to their king that their king defeated the king of Israel. So any transfer of power from a king, you know, like when a king uh, passes away or a queen in, in, uh, in England, they say, um, the king is dead, long live the king. That would be good news. It's good news of a kingdom. And so when they heard the words, good news that Jesus uttered there, and they heard Messiah, they're thinking king and kingdom. It's very important. Um, the gospel is always associated with the victory of a king, the reign of a king, a coming king, an announcement or proclamation of a king. And here's the announcement he says, to proclaim, this is what he's proclaiming, to proclaim uh, good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And these verses, the reason I picked this, of all the verses in the New Testament, is, is because this really encapsulates Jesus' ministry to his people. Um, basically, all he's going to do, this is a heading for it. This is the beginning of his ministry. There's a reason in Luke that he starts his ministry this way, because he's about to do all these things to his people. Um, he's going he's gonna, um, to set people free. Literally and, and spiritually. He sets people free from their bondage, from their, from, their, um, from their infirmities, from being lame, from being blind, from being deaf. He sets them free from, from demon possession. He, he, he also sets them spiritually free by delivering them, by saving them, by forgiving them. Um, not only physical blindness he heals, but spiritual blindness. It says he's going to recover the sight of the blind. And there were many blind people in Israel, blind Jewish rulers, blind uh, people. They were looking for a certain type of king, but Jesus wasn't that. And, and so he opened their eyes to who he was. Um, and he set people free um, from captivity. Um, he did many demon um, exorcisms and set people free from their, from their bondage. And then the last thing he says to proclaim, 19, verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What does that mean? So uh, it's really referring to this thing called the year of Jubilee. Maybe you're familiar with it. In Leviticus 25, it's one of the feasts. So, so you know that every seven days was a Sabbath day. It was uh, the Saturday. 
And it was sundown from Friday night to sundown Saturday night. It was seventh day rest. But every year, there'd be a, every seven years, there was a Sabbath year. And you can read all about this in Leviticus 24 and 25. There was a Sabbath year every seven years where people would be set free. Uh, loans would be given back. People could go back to their land. But then there was a Jubilee year, which was seven Sabbath years. So every seven, it was seven sevens. So it's 49 years of Sabbath years. And then on the 50th year would be a Jubilee year where all the captives would be set free. All, if you had a slave, you'd have to set them free unless they wanted to be with you. If, you. if you were holding on to someone's land and they owed you money, you'd have to give it back to them. All credits were, were, were given back. And, and, and that, that was this huge picture of God's goodness and his rule where people were just set free. And that's what Jesus is saying he brought on the, 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 the scene. So to sum up, what Jesus is saying in these short verses is, I'm not only the messenger of this good news, I am the good news. I am the king. I am bringing my kingdom with me. And this is what it looks like. Liberty, justice, freedom, and healing. Israel's been waiting for 700 years since Isaiah wrote that before Jesus for the return of their king. And Jesus is saying, I'm here. He's saying, I'm the one. I'm the serpent crusher. I'm going to get you out of exile, back into the garden, back into the kingdom. It's time. It's time is here. Jubilee has come. And that was Jesus' primary purpose. A little bit later, Luke 4, 43, it says, he said to them, I must preach the good news, there's that word again, of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For that's why I was sent. For I was sent for this purpose, he says. That's why he came. He was sent to proclaim the good news. In Mark 1, 14 through 15, it says, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Isaiah 61, if you go back, I'd encourage you to do that. Um, Isaiah 61, note he's quoting. Um, it adds, adds to what Jesus was saying. And maybe, maybe Luke didn't include this. Maybe Jesus actually kept continuing to read, but Luke didn't include it. But it, it continues on that this Messiah King is going to bring good news to the poor. He's going to bind up the brokenhearted. He's going to comfort those who mourn. You can read all this in Isaiah 61. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of a mourning or sadness, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. He's going to plant them like oaks. These all sound like great campaign promises to me. Um, you know, like, I'm going to make Israel great again. You know, there's going to be welfare and health care for everybody. Um, there's going to be, you know, everything you want, freedom, debts canceled. Everything you want is going to be yours. Um, freedom, health care, no cost. Who wouldn't vote for that king? Who wouldn't want that king? So what about now? What, what would you say? Um, would you want a monarchy if your king was like that? If he could promise you all that? If he had integrity to follow through with all his promises, would you follow that king? If he never changed people more than was required, or charged people rather, more than what was required to benefit the kingdom, like he didn't overtax his people. If everyone um, was fed and treated justly, if the poor was taken care of in his kingdom, if he threw the best parties, you know, the beautiful headdresses and the oil of gladness and the garments of praise, would you follow that king? These guys didn't. These guys didn't. At first, they responded well, 
But see what happens next. I'm going to pick it up in verse 22, right after he said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And here's their response. In his hometown, it says, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So far, so good. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And then he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. And that was just the proverb of the day. It's not a quote from scripture. It's just something that we assume um, was said then. You know, if you're a doctor, why don't you heal yourself first before you come at us with these things? Um, and then he says, what, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your own hometown. Uh, sorry, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And so if you look at Mark 2, you can see like right before he came to Nazareth, he went to Capernaum and he healed people and he did all these uh, demon exorcisms. And they're like, great, well, why don't you do that here in Nazareth now, Jesus? And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And you can look at this in 1 Kings 17. The heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And so what Jesus is saying there, he's, re he's reminding them of what they would have well known in Elijah, that there was all these people in, in Israel that Elijah could have ministered to, but instead he went to this person who wasn't even an Israelite. She was in a northern town in Sidon. She was a Gentile. So what's Jesus saying there? And we can go on. In verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. You can see that in the beginning of 2 Kings. So same, same thing. Elisha, um, he could have taken care of people in Israel, but instead he takes care of this Gentile guy. So Jesus is saying all this, the stuff they would have known. What, why is he saying it? But listen to their response. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So Jesus being who Jesus is, somehow he escaped some miracle. He slipped through their midst. Um, but why? why? Why did they want to just throw him off a cliff? Um, what was their, why was that their expectation? And everything was great until Jesus told them these promises weren't coming for them. They were Israelites. And he's reminding them that like these other guys took care of these Gentile people. They were ready to receive what Elijah and Elisha did. And, he's, and so basically he's saying the same thing to them. You know, you're Israelites, but you're not ready for this. You're not ready for my blessing. You're not ready for my ministry. So I'm going to go elsewhere. And then they were ready to throw throw their hometown hero off a cliff and stone him. That's what they would do to stone people. They'd throw them off a cliff so they'd break their legs and then they'd just pelt them with rocks off the cliff. Why wasn't this kingdom that Jesus is bringing for them? I mean, they are children of the promise, right? They're Israel. They were Israelites. He was talking to you in the synagogue. And this too is a microcosm of the response Jesus got throughout his campaign to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of Israel. That's why I wanted to look at this passage because it really just speaks of the whole ministry Jesus had. Why? Why? It's because he looked nothing like most of the Israel thought he would. This was not the king they were expecting. That was a, there was a gap in what they expected of Jesus and who he actually presented himself to be. And that, thus their anger. 
And I call that, there's a gap of expectations. There's a gap of expectations. So I was thinking about this. Um, what do I mean by that? So have you ever been, have you ever had like an idea of something, but the reality of it was a lot worse than the idea of it, what it was? So um, a while ago when our kids were young, me and Lori went to Waterworld. And, uh, you know, we had these big plans. It'd be great. The first time we were there, you know, our kids weren't used to a lot of water, but we thought it'd be great. We did like two rides, spent like a hundred bucks, two rides, that's it. Didn't really kind of go quite like we expected. You can ask me more um, about that later. There's, it's too long to go into it, but it was like a disaster. Like, I, uh, yeah, it was, it was miserable. Um, if you're like as parents with little kids, you know, you, you think, hey, I don't want to cook at home. Let's go out to eat. The idea of that is usually always better than the reality of that. When you have this expectation, like, oh, this will be relaxing. We'll go. We don't have to cook. We don't have to clean up dishes. We'll go out. And your kids are like crazy, and they're running all over the place. They're bothering strangers. Your expectation and the reality, there's a gap between the two, the expectation gap. Or planning a cruise only to have it canceled maybe happened to some of you recently. Or uh, yesterday, you know, big tragedy like this. Uh, the pickleball courts are closed in Windsor. And there's an expectation of having fun there. Lori and, and my daughter were going to play. And some people in my community group, a big tragedy because of the lockdown. They can't play pickleball. But it's a bummer, right? So the expectation of fun and the reality, there's a gap. It's a gap of expectation. So the gap between your hopeful expectations and the reality that comes is where frustration, disappointment, they live. And the greater the gap between the expectation and the reality the greater the frustration and disappointment, which turn into greater anger and fear and sorrow with a huge gap um, comes despair. It's kind of obvious, right? Comes rage, despair, sorrow. So let's just say this story is a microcosm of the Gospels. In short, many of the people who are looking for Yahweh to return as king rejected him when he came and only a few accepted and followed and swore allegiance to Jesus as king. Why? Because there was a massive gap between who they expected this king would be and what he would actually do to who he actually was. So there's a big gap between who they thought Jesus would be and what he would do from who he actually was and what he did. What did they expect? What did they expect? These Jewish leaders and the crowds that ended up killing him. They, they expected a Messiah to take out Rome. To take out Rome. Rome was the new Egypt. Rome was the new Babylon of their day. And they wanted the king to come back and vindicate and take out Rome, right? What did they get? Jesus telling them Jerusalem and the temple and the Jewish leaders were the new Babylon and the new Egypt. When Jesus came in and overturned the tables, uh, and, he, and, he, and he proclaimed the woes against the Pharisees, he was telling them, you guys are the corrupt kingdom, and you the guys, you guys need to be overthrown. They didn't like that message too much. The expectation of who he would be and what they heard was, was pretty big. Here's another thing, what they expected. A Messiah to uphold their hierarchy and traditions, you know, their traditions of the law and their writings. A Messiah that would come and uphold all that. But what did they get? A king who told them that tax collectors and Samaritans and Gentile sinners will share the table with them in the kingdom. You know, these sinners, they didn't like that. They spent their whole life trying to be separate from them. They didn't like a king that told them that. Here's another thing they expected. Jesus to ride into town 
with a parade and a procession, which he did, as a king in victory, you know, the gospel, the king is coming. And then he would march all the way to Pontius Pilate's palace, take him out, and then keep going all the way to Rome and take out this corrupt government, a king who killed the Romans. And what did they get? A Jesus who dissed the Jewish leaders, but took care of the outcasts who washed feet, who touched lepers, who healed on the Sabbath, who marched right up to a hill to be defeated by Rome on a cross. They got a king who was killed by Rome. There's a big gap between what they expected and what they got. The difference between God's design for his kingdom and what people expect from it. The difference between who God is as king and what people expect him to be. This is where frustration, confusion, fear, anger, and lack of trust lives. This is the dark place where doubt grows. And the greater the gap of expectation of who our king should be and what his kingdom is like, the greater the frustration, the greater the temptation to take over, the greater the temptation to not trust him, the, the more the temptation to take out this king, which is what happened. So what's the difference between the expectations of the Jewish leaders that had their king killed and the remnant that eventually saw their king Jesus for who he was and who followed him. What's the difference between those two groups? The gap between the kingdom they were expecting and the kingdom God was actually building. So just like last week, trust. Trust is the difference. Trust that God knows what he's doing. Trust that he could do a better job of running their life than they could. Jewish leaders in the crowds wanted to stay on the throne and they wanted a king who would keep them there. Just like Adam and Eve, just like Israel in the Old Testament we looked at last week, they wanted option three. The option where they got to keep the garden, the promised land, and stay on the throne and call the shots. Only call on God when they were desperate, worship him when they thought about it, but then worship every other God around them maintain their hierarchies, not take a care of widows or orphans, and so on and so on. But as we talked last week, there are only two options. There's no option three. Option one, God is king, and we get to share in the goodness of his garden kingdom, co-ruling with him, submitting to his rule, or option two, we are king, and then we get ourselves on the throne that leads to exile. That's all we get, exile. Option three is from the pit of hell. It was a lie from the garden, from the, from the serpent, from the snake. It says, God is holding out on you. You could get more. You could get more. You don't have enough. And as crazy as, sounds, as it sounds, Adam and Eve believed that lie. Even though they had everything around them, they wanted more. They wanted more. I think of Oliver, you know, please, sir, may I have some more? I think of that. It's that that's, that's the condition of the human. We just want more. It doesn't matter how much, how much bless, blessing God gives us. We want more. He's a king that holds out on us as humans. But what they had was enough. What they had was enough. Yahweh in the garden, Yahweh God, unlimited potential. Their life had unlimited purpose and meaning. They had unlimited relationship with each other, unlimited relationship with God, unlimited time. The enough they had was infinitely more than the more they thought would be enough. 
That's, a, that's, that's confusing. Let me say it again. The enough they had was infinitely more than the more that they thought would be enough. In desiring to be elevated, they fell. They descended. Limited potential, limited purpose, limited relationship, limited time. In other words, exile. In desiring to become God's, they instead became less human. Desiring to be like God or like the gods or like angels, they became less human. In desiring more, they got less than what they started with. And ever since, man has been on his quest to make exile more pleasant. We're trying to make exile more pleasant. Rather than jumping off our thrones, our self-made thrones, and swearing allegiance to God as king and join his kingdom, we wield our scepters around and try to make our little exiled kingdoms better and manageable and comfortable. Why would humans rather stay in exile and remain on their thorny thrones than enter into rest in the garden kingdom? All because of this little small thing, namely swearing allegiance to him. Why can't we just do that? Why can't we just swear allegiance to him as king? And again, it's trust. Humans still have the propensity to think God, our king, is holding out on us. Or he won't make the decisions for his Exile, for this exiled life, we'd want him to. We, we could get more than what he's willing to give us. And here's the thing that's really hard for humans to get. Submission in the garden is better than freedom in the desert. Submission in the garden in his kingdom is better than freedom in ours. The submission and allegiance to God as king is the freedom our soul is really longing for. And the freedom that we seek when we're on the throne is the thing that holds us captive, ironically, to experiencing the purpose of life that we were meant for. Since the garden, we've been in exile in a broken world. It's not hard to see that right now. Is there a gap in your expectation of who you think Jesus should be and what you think he should be doing in your life versus what he's actually doing? and who he actually is in your life right now. Many of us have had our plans um, thwarted completely in the past few weeks. Um, I'm sure you've heard tons of stories. You know, vacations canceled. Um, you know, cruise, cruise vacations that were on their way back home and got stuck in port. Missions cut short. It's highly possible that there will be no check, check trip this year. I don't know. We don't know. It's very possible that won't happen this summer. Aubrey had to come home early. Maybe you saw in the room. Financial plans messed up. Businesses failing. Bills that can't be paid. Jobs threatened. Many of you have had your plans thwarted by longer than that. For, for longer than that. A child who remains astray. Not following God as king. For a long time. Won't even talk to you maybe. Um, these are all stories I know of in our body. Maybe you've been trying to get pregnant and you can't. Promoted, but you can't. You want to get married, but there doesn't seem to be anyone out there for you. Your marriage has been on the rocks for years, but you're just hanging on for the kids. Is there a gap between your expectations of your king and what he's actually doing in your life? The greater the gap, the greater the potential for frustration, disappointment, anger, fear, despair. 
or we could trust. We could remember who our king really is and what he's trying to do. We could remember that our king not only is super strong, super wise, super rich, has tons of integrity, is really generous, but also that he entered into the exile with you. Your king became a commoner, a peasant, a peasant like you and me. And your king didn't stay in a castle on a hill, but he entered in the brokenness with you and me. What if this king came to serve and not be served, to give his life as a ransom, to pull you out of exile into the kingdom, Matthew 20? Would you follow that king? Is a monarchy good then? Would you follow this king who, who laid it all aside to be one of us? I'm going to read a couple familiar passages. Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves. Listen to, listen to who our king is. Like with fresh ears. Just think of our king. This king. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of that humiliation, God has exalted him as king. He had to go through the suffering to, to conquer death, to, to conquer the exile, and now he's exalted highly at the name, a name above all names at God's right hand. And then this passage, Colossians 1. 15, actually 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And this is, this is true of you if you are a follower of this king. If you sworn allegiance to Jesus as your king, this is true. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us in the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Sounds like an awesome, amazing king we can trust. Would you follow that king? Because whether the world expected that king or not, that's the king we have. And like it or not, he's brought his kingdom with him. And he wants you and me to join him as his image to bear his name in this world, to share in the, 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 the glory of building and expanding this kingdom with him, to bring more people into it. Because there's so many people that are caught in the kingdom of darkness that need to be brought into the kingdom of light. They're letting the despair of what's happening right now crush them. And they're seeing that massive gap between what they expect. Even Christians around us, Christians that we sit next to in this church, um, are sometimes doubting who God is. I doubt who God is sometimes. And, and why is he doing what he's doing? And we need to be reminded, remind each other every time that this is the king we have, the king who has made himself low so he could raise us up um, to bring us in his kingdom. Can you and I follow that king today? Let me pray. 
Father, your kingdom come. We pray that today. May your kingdom come. And we just thank you that we can, we can pray that the Father is our king. The king is our father. He, you're not distant, God. You're not on a hill somewhere removed, but you entered in. You became one of us. You filled us with your spirit. You've given us your authority to go out. And Lord, help us be um, your sons and daughters representing you well, lifting our heads high in hope that you can get us through this and that you will, and that you're gonna sustain us. So Lord, we pray for that daily bread today. Go before us, God. Um, help us to be bright lights, even, even when it means we can't be around the people we are normally. Lord, help us find creative ways to, to share the hope of a king and a kingdom that we live in. God, and, and lift our spirits today. Help us trust in you this week. And we pray all this in your matchless name, Jesus, the king. And all God's people said,